for getting started, I would not go out and rent a venue and commit $200,000, $300,000 to hosting your first event. Start with virtual events, mm -hmm. build an audience, build a community around it. You're going to get attendees who you're proving value to. They're going to trust the content that you're putting out there, build relationships with speakers, with sponsors, essentially de-risk the experience. And once you feel like you've hit that critical mass, maybe it's an event every quarter for a year, whatever your business feels like makes sense for them. That's when you can then go out and start thinking about building those pillar or flagship in-person experiences to piggyback on that virtual experience where it's de-risked, where the community is already ready to go. I would start small. And instead of starting with building events for the top of the funnel, I would start with building events for the bottom of the funnel. So start building customer events, whether it's product launch events, whether it's just opportunities for your customers to come together and talk about the way that they're using your product. Bring a couple of evangelists in to lead the conversation. Figure out the actual motion of running an event. You're listening to the Paris Talks Marketing Podcast, where we interview top marketing leaders at high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue-based companies. Our goal with this podcast is to cut through the fluff and jargon of digital marketing to reveal what's really working at some of the fastest growing, most successful SaaS companies today. The Paris Talks Marketing Podcast is sponsored by Hop Online, a performance growth marketing agency. If you like this episode, and would like to have a similar conversation with someone at our agency, just go to hop.online, H-O-P.online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, let's get into the episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. And today, I welcome Jonathan Kazarian, who is the CEO of Excella Events, which is helping event organizers get some sleep the night before their event. The leading virtual and hybrid event management platform, which was recently recognized by Inc. 5000 as a top 100 fastest growing private companies in America. As the CEO, John is focused on leading the company's vision of helping event organizers and marketing professionals transform their events through innovative technology solutions. John also chairs the board for the fall formal fundraiser benefiting the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Outside of work, John has a passion for anything on water, sailing, boating, scuba diving, and kiteboarding. So John, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. I want to start with something that I think is rare and extremely interesting for our audience, which is the story of hyperscale. And you all went from about 300,000 in ARR to 9 million in eight months. And, and during that time, you pivoted from an in-person event platform to a virtual event platform. Can you give us a sense of, of the roller coaster ride that was and, and how it was for you, both mentally and emotionally? Yeah, it was uh, very exciting. I think from an emotional perspective, it never even hit. It was just like, so heads down, this is what we got to do. We have to deliver. We have customers who, who need us to execute. And I don't think I ever even got a second to take a step back and sort of evaluate what was going on for better or worse, I guess. But the thing that I think it makes it particularly interesting for us is that there was a five-year journey before that where we were frankly tiny. I was bootstrapping the business. I was building it nights and weekends while working another job. And then when we made the pivot into the company that we are today, that's when things just really took off and it got really interesting. And when did that start? When did that journey start? Was it highly correlated with COVID, I presume? Well, the, the journey of the hyperscale was highly correlated with COVID. Um, mm -hmm. From that perspective, where the emotional roller coaster did happen was that, you know, I'd spent five years building this company and all of a sudden I had nothing to show for it. Everything I was building basically slipped between my fingers 
when the world shut down. Our revenue didn't just go to zero. It essentially went negative because every ticket that was refunded for a canceled event was money that we had to take out of our bank account to pay back to that ticket holder. So I watched that happen and everything fall apart. But at the same time, we had this conviction, this belief that technology was going to play a bigger role in events in the future. And we had been building towards that. So as we were watching everything basically evaporate in front of us, we were also making this pivot to deliver virtual events. I mean, that's what we were hearing was necessary from our customers. It was obvious to us that we had to find a solution for people to gather, for marketers to tell their story, to build community, to generate content. And as everything was falling apart, everything else was also sort of starting to come together. And we started to build some Mm -hmm. traction. We started to get the word out there. We started to pre-sell before we even had a product, frankly, and use some of that revenue to help fund the development that allowed us to fully execute that pivot and bring a product to market. Mm-hmm. How long did it take before the that oh shit moment where you saw your revenues plunge negative to the point where you actually had a product that the technology was there, you had a product that was ready to go to market? How many, how many months? Yeah. So, so I remember the catalyst being when Facebook canceled the F8 conference. I remember getting the notification on my phone and being like, that's not good. And at that point, we started to see, okay, ticket sales have drastically slowed. Okay, now we're starting to see these refunds. And then it was like, what, March 13th or something like that, when everything just Mm -hmm. really started to fall apart, at least in the US. And we pretty much went all in, I think, on that date on, on starting towards taking hybrid events into virtual events. And we ended up hosting the first virtual event the last week in May of 2020. So it took us about two months to get something viable out the door. But it was, frankly, you know, it wasn't, wasn't an experience that I'm proud of from what we delivered. Yeah. And now the product is, is a hybrid platform, which can merge an in-person live event with a virtual event, correct? Yeah. So it's, it's beyond just that. I mean, we are the entirety of the, the event technology that an organization needs. So whether they're running virtual events, webinars, hybrid events, large scale flagship conferences, or even field marketing events, all of that happens under one platform. Mm-hmm. Excel events. And all of that data then is connected, right? So you understand an attendee's journey, an attendee's life cycle across all of these different connected experiences and touch points that they have with your organization and your brand. Let's let's dive into the data side a little bit because I think this is this is a very unique aspect. You've got data that I believe is, is captured pre-event, data captured during an event, and then also post-event. And and you mentioned also that the, the CRM platforms, the current CRM platforms and other tools aren't really designed to capture this kind of data the right way. Can you talk to me about how you approach that data pre-event, during event, and post-event, and how do you stitch it all together? Yeah, and how your customers are using it. So there's just a vast amount of information that's become available. But you know, even to talk about that, I think there's, there's kind of two big things that have happened over the past couple of years that make this really relevant today. One of which is the cookie future, right? So Apple's war on Facebook, Google tapping in and the reduction in third-party cookie tracking, making traditional digital marketing mechanisms less successful. What that in turn does is it makes first-party data and zero-party data even more important and powerful and useful. At the same time, we've seen this sort of convergence between event 
professionals and demand gen folks where the organization has learned how much data can become available from events and how to use that information. So between those two things happening, it's really cemented events as this as this pillar, this cornerstone for capturing and using first party data to power the organization, to power the demand gen funnel, whether it's mm-hmm. personalization, you know, frankly, wherever it is on the funnel, right? It could be brand awareness, it could be converting prospects, it could be uh, expansion revenue with existing customers through product launch events and, and customer events. But in terms of all of that information that becomes available at the very beginning of the funnel there or the cycle, you've got the registration information. Now, the registration information, sort of point in time data, right? It's not all that different than what somebody might be giving up for, say, a white paper download or an ebook download, but it is first party data. From there, you start to learn about, okay, what are the sessions or the sponsors that this particular attendee is interested in? What are they viewing? What are they bookmarking? What are they flagging? Who are they looking to network with and meet? And then you get into the actual event experience itself and you can start to get a better grip on where are they spending their time? How engaged are they in this different uh, these different elements of content? So I'll, you know, I'll give you an example. Let's say that you're a company like HubSpot. You have a customer who's on the CRM product today but you notice you're hosting a customer event, you notice they're checking out a whole bunch of sessions related to say your your service hub product. Well, that in itself should trigger something that tells the account manager, hey, we need to reach out to these folks. They're showing a lot of interest in our service product. Maybe they're up for renewal with their existing their existing CX vendor and use that to prompt a conversation. Now, obviously that's a, a bottom of funnel example there, but that sort of data and insight is so incredibly fa- powerful and organizations are starting to learn how to use that information. Ah, yeah, very interesting. And for you all, are you also putting on events yourself to do this and and understanding that same kind of data for yourself? Yeah, I mean, we have to, right? We're an event technology provider, so we have to host events. We have to learn. We have to use our own platform. So mm-hmm. we certainly are. You know, I also grew up in Boston, so right by the the HubSpot office. So we are uh, yeah. we are HubSpot users ourselves. We have very deep integrations with HubSpot and. We build all these workflows. We try all these things. We test it ourselves. And are you able to, so with this zero party data, which for for our audience is typically the data that a user, a prospect would volunteer as part of a sign up flow or in order to get access to something. And that's, I believe that's a form of first party data. And then you've got all all the other first party data that lives in other platforms. Is that also how you see it? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're thinking about like the the different aspects of the data stack, the way I think about that is you've got your you know, third party data is something that's essentially accessible to anybody. Google owns all of the cookie data or Facebook owns all of the data that they have. You can mm-hmm. use those data sources to run ads at them. Second party data would be like, let's say you and I, let's say I, I host an event, right? And I invite you as an exhibitor or a sponsor of that event. I share back an attendee list with you. At the end of the day, that data is owned by me, not by you, but you have access to data that is not generally accessible to everybody else. Then you've got first party data. So that's data that you're actively collecting from customer activity. Maybe that's session views or how long they spend in a session, which pages they're visiting on your website, purchase history. And then zero party data is sort of the next level where people are actively filling out information, whether it be the registration Mm -hmm. form, their participation in polls, Q&A, things that they're directly telling you. And again, in the world of first party and zero party data, that's proprietary information to your organization that you can use to build audiences, to run ad sets, to build campaigns, to create personalized messaging, whatever it is that your organization needs to do to to, frankly, create a better customer experience. 
Yeah. So one of the common beliefs is that the more information you're asking for upfront as part of a conversion flow, that you're going to hurt your conversion rates. Do you agree with that? If you yeah. ask for too much? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the, one of the great things about events is that you've got this natural progression. You're mm -hmm. asking what you need at each step in the journey. So you might ask mm -hmm. for a certain amount of information for people to get initially registered, some more information the day before the event additional information when they access the event, be it virtual or in person for the first time. Maybe that's when they log into the virtual event platform. Maybe it's when they download and install the mobile app on their device when they're attending in person. So you're progressively capturing more and more zero party data in that case. Is it possible also to use that data of attendees and all the, all the other the signals that come with it? to build audiences in the ad platforms. If I only had a hundred people or maybe maybe 500 people come to my event, well, that's a high quality audience, but it's just not big enough. And I need to take that into an ad platform like Facebook or LinkedIn or Google and expand it 50, 50X. Is that something that your customers are able to do? Yeah, so they're using that information as they're using information from other mechanisms capture, capturing that, that zero-party data and pushing mm -hmm. that to the ad platform. So it's not, yes, if it's a larger event, they may build an audience directly off of that, but it's really a combination of those different data sources. I, I see the virtual or hybrid events as a, in a way as an evolution from uh, webinars. Are these the new webinars or is there still a role for webinars in the B2B marketing mix? Yeah, I think there is still a role for webinars in the in the B2B marketing mix. To some extent, if you're like we're doing right now, if you're going to be creating content, why not do it live? Why not create the opportunity for people to participate mm -hmm. at the same time? But really where virtual events mm -hmm. take that to the next level is that webinars are a, a unidirectional mechanism of communication. You're pushing information out. They're not that mm -hmm. interactive. Yeah, people might ask questions, there might be polls, but you're not really building as much of a community around that audience. Where in the world of events, you're bringing folks together, you're letting them network with each other, learn from each other. And look, event design is a it's a it's a college major. There's designations and courses around it. There's a lot of psychology that goes into event design. And it doesn't matter if that's in person or virtual, it's about creating opportunity for people and community. And when it comes to events, that's what you're doing beyond just generating content. Gotcha. Yeah. And th this landscape now is pretty competitive, I presume, and a lot of major players sprang up during COVID. How is it to position yourself? How do you all position yourself in this very highly competitive landscape? And, and what are the key differentiators that you try to communicate? Yeah. So there's, there is a number of companies that have popped up probably because they've seen exciting fundraising announcements from other companies. And there's folks that were in the world of events pre-pandemic who have actually hosted events and they understand that landscape. They understand the stresses that come along with hosting events. And then there's some newer companies that have, have come along the way. From our perspective of where we position ourselves, it's about being the sole platform that allows an organizer to create any one of those experiences. When they implement our mm -hmm. solution, they're not having to duct tape a whole bunch of different tools together in order to create those unique experiences. They've got a one-stop shop where they can bring all of that together and have a single place for all of that connected attendee data. Mm -hmm. And then the other area of where we really set ourselves apart is the customer experience side. When I started the business, there was, there was times where I'd be like on the highway on a Friday night, pulling over on the side of the road to respond to customers. And I think that's because I started the business after other event tech failed me and I couldn't get a hold of anybody. So having been on the receiving side of that, I just, I realized that this is a world where you spend three months building an experience that culminates in 
three hours. You don't have even 10 minutes to wait for a response. So having that real-time resource available to you and a, a person, not a robot, it makes a world of difference for executing that event and for de-stressing that event for the organizer. Mm -hmm. So by and large, we've really focused on customer experience, even above marketing. You mentioned also the excellent tight integration with HubSpot. Is that yeah. also a differentiator that, that you're the best event platform that integrates with HubSpot? Yeah. So uh, we integrate very, very deep with HubSpot, Marketo, Salesforce, and a number of other platforms as well. But I mean, those are usually the three that people ask about first. But yeah, I mean, it absolutely is. We also have organizations that build their own native integrations with our API and webhooks because they have existing workflows that they, they need to facilitate through proprietary systems that they've built in-house. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Now, if I'm, I'm looking at the website and I can see that there's two Pretty, pretty classic motions. There's a product-led growth motion where you can try it for free, and there's a sales-led motion to request a demo. Of all your new acquisitions, approximately how much are coming through your product-led growth motion versus your sales-led? So now you're getting into those questions that, uh, that competitors might want to know about. Oh, uh, okay. We, we see a significantly higher rate of people signing up for the free mm -hmm. trial than we do for requesting a demo. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have obviously motions in place to try to get on the phone with those folks and convert them into paying customers directly. Mm -hmm. Are there certain signals or data points that you can observe as people are in a free trial experience that would signal to you that they're, they have a very low churn rate or they have a high predicted lifetime value? So off the bat, the first thing that we're looking for is are they adding their colleagues? Okay. And I mean, this is something that we would see in the first or the second session. And that helps mm -hmm. us to understand the likelihood of, of, of them continuing to progress and building out their event experience. Mm -hmm. We also ask pre and post NPS. So we ask for an NPS in the platform 10 days before the event, and then within 48 hours after the event. And we use those as signals to understand, you know, how is this customer at risk? Are they worried about their event in advance? If so, we make a very active motion to get on the phone with them and figure out how we can de-stress that experience for them and to make sure that they're set up for success. And then mm -hmm. post-event, obviously, we want to maintain that over time, see those numbers growing. We're also using that as a mechanism for figuring out what is the opportunity here to expand this account? Does it make sense for them to move to a higher plan where they have access to hosting unlimited events? Yeah, I see. Well, there are two different... There are two different plans here that I can see that's with quite quite different price points, 125 per month or 1250 per month for the unlimited sessions. I'm curious if you had, during the pricing strategy, considered other forms of usage-based pricing, which may not be tied to the number of sessions. Usage-based pricing is not tied to the number of sessions. That's a, a feature tier. Okay. So we, we have a hybrid pricing model where there's a platform fee and then there's usage based on the number of attendees. One thing that really sets us apart from some of the, well, actually all of the other platforms out there is that we don't charge based on the number of registrants. We only charge in the people that actually show up. So we're not going to okay. sit there and funnel crap leads at your at your registration page, getting them to, to register and then charging you for that. We only charge mm -hmm. the people that actually log into the platform on the day of your event. Okay. Yeah, I gotcha. And for the people that are in a trial experience, and I imagine that a lot of people are going to have their first event, but that the second event is a major KPI, which would start to indicate that they've gotten through their first event and it was a positive enough experience that they're now launching their second event. Is that a big KPI for your marketing, the, the second event or any kind of other habitual metric? Yeah. Usually after the first event, if they're coming back, they're ready to upgrade. So it's yeah. um, at that point, they're having a conversation with our sales team. Okay. And maybe this is not something that you can share, but is there a rate of first to second event that's like a, um, I mean, is that something that you're able to share? I mean, how many first event attendees will go on to have a second event? 
Yeah. So we expand about 65% of our accounts. I can, I can. Oh, okay. That. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. I presume that there's a big gap in tech savviness between your, uh, your B2B SaaS event customer and a, either a big association or a uh, college's career office event planner or something like that. Is it, do you deal with different levels of sophistication? Where the sophistication tends to come in or the, the difference there is less so in the platform itself. Because the platform is built in a way where anybody can you know come in and, and set up an event without any assistance from us. But where the conversation starts to change is in the, the B2B SaaS enterprise space. We see marketing ops involved, marketing or rev ops involved in almost every procurement process. Mm-hmm. So they're more interested in where does this sit in my MarTech stack? And they want to make sure that it's going to be fully integrated with the rest of their, their infrastructure, the rest of their systems. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Which is also you know, a saving grace for them because instead of having to figure out how to do that with four platforms, they're figuring out with one platform and then they can expand it throughout the organization and each department can have their own sub-account, but yet the RevOps team only has to, to maintain that data point once or data source. Yeah. In terms of your marketing mix, specifically for acquiring new customers, can you take can you take us through that a little bit? Um, generally, do you have do you have paid media spread across, say, Google, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and um, and then also what kind of organic, non paid channels are, are working best for you right now? Yeah, so the, the number one channel for us is word of mouth and okay. attendees of events, attendees, sponsors, speakers, exhibitors at events uh, mm-hmm. who have seen the platform in action. Then when they're ready to host their own event, come our way. Uh, and frankly. That was by design. From the very beginning, we recognized that those folks were they're, they're a secondary customer, right? Mm-hmm. Not only because we actually are getting, you know, making money off of their attendance, that's, that's how we get paid, but also because there's a massive opportunity to convert those folks into customers. And it's also why we invested so heavily in the customer experience team, because we want every event to be as successful as it possibly can be, not just for the event organizer, but from that referral motion. Beyond that, yes, we do paid search. We do some paid LinkedIn, although not much SEO, running events ourselves, and then you know organic social. So the word of mouth or the, the attendees, is, do you have specific mechanisms that, that give incentives to, for those people to refer out? Um, no, we actually don't. We don't have any okay. any formal referral program. We're not monetarily incentivizing people. The incentive is, look, you're, when you're hosting an event, your job is frankly on the line. And if we can provide a, a platform, a solution that's going to make people feel like that's not a risk, then they're going to keep coming back. And that's our mm-hmm. objective. Yeah. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue-based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online, that's hop, H-O-P, dot online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. Now, as the world gets back to normal and in-person traditional events are coming back, is that in any way a threat to, to your business? I mean, has the, has the virtual event demand peaked and is now coming, coming down because of post-COVID trends? Yeah, I think we've, I think we've hit a, uh, a short-term peak, or yeah. I think we're frankly well past that short-term peak where mm-hmm. every event had to be virtual. There was no other option. 
Now we're in this new phase where more and more businesses are adopting virtual. They're understanding it and they're increasing the programming. They're hosting more virtual events because they know how. They can. They realize the benefits. They see the ROI from it. So I don't I don't look at in-person as a threat. Well, one, because we're a technology provider for in-person events. That was what we did pre-pandemic. So it's still a you know, revenue channel for us. The other thing is that what the past two years has done is it, it's taught organizations the power of event data. The CFO, the CMO has come to expect that. The demand gen and the event marketing teams have figured out how to use that information. And attendees have come to expect technology to play a role in their event experience as well. So with the in-person experiences, we're seeing a greater adoption, about 3x actually, adoption of a mobile app for attendees on-site, which organizations obviously want as well because it gives them all of that information about session attendance and how engaged people were in the sessions, whether it's participating in chats, poll, Q&A through the mobile app, the way that they're networking, all of that other insight that comes alongside of it. Uh, And again, that's another revenue, a revenue channel for us. Yeah. John, what advice would you give? Let's imagine we've got a SaaS company that hasn't really invested yet in events and they listen to this and get inspired, but they're they're not sure where to start. What, what advice would you give to a B2B SaaS company that has had pretty good success with other inbound channels, paid and organic, maybe also partnerships, referrals, haven't done events? How would you advise them to get started? What should they think about and what would be the elements of, of a successful event for their first event? Yeah. Well, if partnerships are a channel for that company, then you should definitely Mm -hmm. be utilizing events because it's a great way to deepen the relationship with those partners, right? If you're hosting an event, Mm -hmm. you're inviting them to participate for free. You're providing them value. As for getting started, I would not go out and rent a venue, a ballroom and commit $200,000, $300,000 to hosting your first event. Start with virtual events, build an audience, build a community around it. You're going to get attendees who you're proving value to. They're going to trust the content that you're putting out there build relationships with speakers, with sponsors, essentially de-risk the experience. And once you feel like you've hit that critical mass, maybe it's an event every quarter for a year, maybe it's an event every month for six months, whatever your business feels like makes sense for them, that's when you can then go out and start thinking about building those pillar or flagship in-person experiences to piggyback on that virtual experience where it's de-risked, where the community is already ready to go. Mm Mm-hmm. What are some of the best strategies for p- promoting and building an audience for an event, especially if it's if it, this is your first event? Maybe you've got speakers committed. Now you've got to bring an audience to them. Yeah. How, how are some of the best ways to do that? I would start small. And instead of starting with building events for the top of the funnel, I would start with building events for the bottom of the funnel. So start building customer events, whether it's product launch events, whether it's just opportunities for your customers to come together and talk about mm-hmm. the way that they're using your product. Bring a couple of evangelists in to lead the conversation figure out the actual motion of running an event. You're also going to figure out which of your customers can speak at the mid-funnel events and then start to work your way up. Because you got to think about this from two halves, the event planning side and then the event marketing side. As it, as it comes to thinking about it from the event marketing side, when you're thinking about the speakers, identify one, who are the people that you want to be there that they're going to be most informative for your target audience? Two, who are the people that you actually want to sell to? And then start going mm-hmm. after those two segments. When it comes to getting both of those different channels in, don't just target the speaker themselves. Figure out who in that company is responsible for demand gen and content in almost every organization The marketing team wants the executive team to be generating more content. So if you can go to the marketing team and say, hey, 
if you get this person to speak at our event, we're going to give you the full video recording. We're going to do six social posts. We're going to create all of these other assets to help promote your company and your thought leadership. Then let them sell on behalf within that organization. Mm-hmm. And can some of the speakers themselves help help bring audience? Oh, absolutely. To the event? Absolutely. Co-promotion? Yeah. And when it comes to that, you can give everybody, obviously, a referral link to track how much registration they're, draw, they're, they're driving, mm-hmm. but you want to incentivize them as well. Maybe that's a free ticket to your in-person event or 10. Maybe it's free tickets for people at their company to join the virtual event. It could be that, hey, we're going to run a $5,000 paid campaign promoting you as a keynote speaker or whoever it is that drives the most registration. So incentivize them, gamify it a little bit, give them something mm-hmm. out of that. Could they get the attendees data that, that signed up through their referral link? Would you be able to share the, the data of yeah, the attendees absolutely. with them? I mean, that, yeah, that's obviously up to, up to your organization and your legal counsel, but uh, yeah, very, yeah. Yeah, very much you could. But the, the platform allows for that, right? Oh, absolutely. If, yeah. yeah. And, and, and in the world of events where you do have those partners involved, you can actually automate the entire process. So if you've got partners and people are checking out their virtual expo booth, they're interacting with those partners in real time over video or chat in that experience, mm-hmm. the platform actually automates sending out those lead lists to those organizations after the fact. And you can uh-huh. determine exactly which data points are, are made available. Interesting. Yeah, I imagine that could be a big hook for pitching big name speakers is to say that if you help me co-promote this event and I will give you your own referral link, you'll get uh, you'll get access to all the attendees that came through your promotional efforts. And that's a big yeah. uh, that's a big selling point and a big asset for them. I've always thought events still seem to be something that's really a big effort and, and too difficult for a lot of companies to take on, but it's gotten a lot easier. It shouldn't be. And you can also find either freelancers or agencies that are experts in this. Mm-hmm. And they're going to help. They're going to they're going to run the entire thing for you. Your responsibility is still going to be identifying who are your targets from a speaker perspective, a content perspective. But there's organizations that can help you pull off the entirety of actually running that event. And we have a number of partners that we work with as well. And we'd be happy to introduce anybody if that's something that they're looking for. It doesn't have to be a huge barrier. I think there's a fear around it. And frankly, for good reason. If you're going to go and commit a couple hundred thousand dollars to running an in-person event, that is scary. It's a big commitment. And four years ago, three years ago, you would have done that and had very little data or information to show and to measure the success of that. Today, you can do it for a couple thousand dollars and break the ice. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, and in terms of your other marketing, non-paid marketing, I see that you've, you've got a lot in the, in the learn section of the website, particularly blog, case studies. What kind of team do you have that's supporting all that content marketing? And how formalized do you have that whole process? Yeah, it's something that we've experimented with and tried a different, a couple of different ways. We've we've also worked with agencies in the past from an SEO perspective. But at the end of the day, it's you know we're, we're having conversations with customers every day. You know, I talked about how active our customer experience team is, and we're just constantly learning. So whether it's putting blog content out there or even our knowledge base, I think we've got almost 300 articles in our knowledge base, and mm-hmm. we're updating those daily. Yeah. So we just want to put as much information out there to help people. And then recently, I've actually. I've gotten pretty involved in, in LinkedIn as well and sharing mm-hmm. insights from the conversations I'm having from my experience speaking at events or chatting with folks who run events, just trying to help the community as much as we possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen your activity on LinkedIn. I mean, how much time in any given week do you personally spend on LinkedIn roughly? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but I, I've jotted down three different LinkedIn post ideas just from this conversation alone. So it, uh, it used to take me longer 
like an hour per post. Now I've got it down to 15 or 20 minutes mm-hmm. to put something together. I run it through Grammarly and then I'm, then post it. It's the interacting with the rest of the community that I would say is more time consuming. Mm-hmm. How often are you posting? Are you posting every day, more or less? Every weekday. Every weekday. Are you finding any higher engagement with different formats or lengths of posts, say video versus long form? I haven't done much with other... video, but would love to try it with this. Yeah. Well, yeah, I... we're streaming live on LinkedIn right now. Yeah. I told the marketing team that I would start posting on TikTok once I get a haircut. <laughs> yeah. So I'm dragging that out as long as I can. Yeah. Do you believe in TikTok for B2B? I'm not on TikTok personally. Mm-hmm. Like I just created an account last week because, well, I'm thinking about it. Just, yeah. Just to have the option when it's ready. I think we're early in it for B2B, but at the end of the day, you're marketing to people, right? So why should it matter? Yeah, that's true. How important do you think as a CEO and founder, how important do you think it is for SaaS CEOs to be active on LinkedIn every day and building their personal brand alongside their company's brand? Yeah. So I I fundamentally believe that the thing that is going to allow B2B businesses to win in the future is generating content and generating community. And when it comes to doing those two things, events are one of the most powerful mechanisms to do so. But then you've got the distribution aspect. LinkedIn, TikTok, Twitter, whatever other channel it may be is an opportunity to share the content that you're creating and create a community around that. So from that perspective, look, we're an event platform. This is this is what we do. This is what I believe in. So for me, it's a staple. It has to be. But the other thing I found is that the act of just taking a couple of minutes every day to write out those posts, it's an opportunity to sort of slow down a little bit and think through these ideas and not just share those ideas with the event and the marketing communities that are out there, but also with our team to Mm -hmm. empower them with more concepts and ideas that they can use when they're chatting with prospects and customers to share what I'm thinking about. So I think there's a couple of benefits that come from it. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect. In a lot of ways, it's one of the reasons I do this podcast too is for our own team to keep the finger on the pulse of some of the things that they wouldn't otherwise be reading in other blogs and to hear a little bit what what I'm thinking and the way that I steer certain conversations or the questions that I'm asking. And I do hope that they're they're listening. And and another way about LinkedIn is that it's almost, as you said, it's a form of even helping to consolidate and streamline your own thoughts. It's a little bit like journaling, perhaps. It is. Where you sit down to write a post and you haven't haven't 100% formulated exactly what you want to say, but as you start writing, it comes out and it helps you clarify your own thoughts by simply putting the words on paper, which is like journaling in a way. It is. And I never was able to get hooked on journaling. I think the act of publishing something makes, it's that catalyst to, to really push yeah. me to do it. It's, it's an accountability mechanism. But the other thing is like, I'm, I have a pet peeve around writing. I think mm-hmm. it was because like the first job I had, I had a boss who just annihilated me for every email, everything I wrote. And it was a great thing. I think it's helped me quite a bit. I think I have a very long way to go still as a writer, but just like going to the gym every day or going for a run, practicing writing something that you're ultimately going to publish makes you better at it. And yeah. the way that you communicate is whether it's, it's oral or written, the ability to create concise thought is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And writing isn't for everybody. Some people prefer video or audio. Oh, I hate writing. Don't get me wrong. It's I'm forcing myself to do this. Yeah, I've always struggled in, uh, over the years writing blog posts, and I, I generally hated doing it. Once I got into video, and now especially with podcasting, I have always loved to talk. I, I hate really putting the words on paper because then I scrutinize them a whole lot. But talking, the, the words are out there and, and um, 
I don't, it doesn't require a big editorial process. You know, it's, I'm more in the moment when I'm doing it. So that's why for me, the video and podcasting and live is the best because I don't fear as much any mistakes I might make. I just go with it and my natural thought process comes out and I'm not subject to really that scrutinization of the editorial process of writing. That said, I still personally should be writing a lot more LinkedIn posts. And I've noticed that some, especially longer posts that almost look like a blog posts from the old days now inserted into LinkedIn posts, those seem to be doing really well. But you know, the other part of, of the writing is even when you do find yourself in conversations like this, the anecdotes that you create when you're creating those, those daily posts help you to create, again, concise stories and mm-hmm. share information that you've already done that deep thought on. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's these, these actual conversations are the things that spark things for me. It's what, that's why I believe podcasting is the most efficient content production format that there is, at least for me, because the things that come out of these conversations are not thoughts that I would otherwise be able to put on paper without, without getting inspiration from the conversation first. And it's very rare that I come across some kind of a blog post where I think, whoa, that's really innovative stuff. That's a whole new line of thought that I haven't come across before. Right. Um, and, and when you are reading a longer form content post, you have to dig so far through that in order to find that nugget that is original thought. Whereas when you're reading something in feed in social, you can just scroll through and identify right away, is this going to be valuable to me or not? Because it's just that one piece of content. At the end of the day, though, I mean, even in the past two weeks, there's a lot of people talking about how engagement on LinkedIn has dropped significantly. People are mm-hmm. seeing 4X, 5X reductions in the impressions that they're getting on their content and their content hasn't materially changed. So you do still have this, you, you ultimately don't own the audience, right? LinkedIn owns the audience. You can own your content, you can have your followers, but LinkedIn mm-hmm. determines the reach. And one of the things that events do and the idea of building community around your brand is then you're owning it. And it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that you own it because you've got your own 365 community technology platform that people log into every four weeks. You're occupying their mind share and mm-hmm. you're doing that through putting content out and creating opportunities for people to come together around your brand. Right. Yeah. I think psychologically, there's a different notion of being part of a community when you attend an event with other people, as opposed to just consuming content in, in other ways. The affinity for community, certainly being together physically does it, but also virtually. I think about it, multi-day events that I've attended where you've made a lot of friends and you feel like this group of people around me is now, we have something here. It is a community. I mean, it might, might be a loose community, but it still is. Yeah. I, I posted on LinkedIn the other day about the last three events I went to, you know, when everyone's like at the hotel like uh, entrance and they're waiting for their Ubers and everybody's like, they were all wearing the name badges. It's safe. But then you get in the car with somebody for 20 yeah. minutes and it's like, oh, all of a sudden I'm chatting with the, you know, the cha- the president of a, a state chapter from the American Marketing Association. There's just, there yeah. is that community that that's developed yeah. around that. And what- Yeah, everybody's wearing the badge. I mean, even vi- visually, everybody's wearing the badge and you feel like this is a, this is my tribe for these two or three days. Yeah, they'll even wear it in the airport on the last day because they want somebody, they want to extend it. They want people to come up and like get the most out of it. And and that's why we're seeing that events that have the capacity or desire to build that community are using technology to create that opportunity before the event starts. Because if you can, again, de-risk the experience, not in this case for yourself, but for your attendees, take away some of the social anxiety, make it so that they're going into that event with five or 10 people that they want to meet, that they've already interacted with, then you're making that experience even more important for them. Well said. Well, John, this has been great. Thanks for spending the time with me, John. It was great to meet you and hear the story. And for those of you listening who are still you know, not, not ready or dipping your toe into the event channel, I think it's a great time to do so. And check out Excel Events and check out John on LinkedIn. 
Thanks for having right. me on. Yeah, thanks very much. And look forward to keeping in touch, John. Yeah, same here. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P dot online. Have a great day.